How often is it that the angry man rages denial of what his inner self is telling him? The Collected Sayings of Muhadib by the Princess Hiralan. Welcome to Reading Dune, a podcast where we read Dune by Frank Herbert and talk about it. If you're a Fremen or a first-time reader, this podcast is for you. My name is Caleb Pauls. And I'm Evan Diaz. And together, you, me, and Evan, we are going to read some Dune. Yeah, we are. What is up, my Sir Evan Diaz? How are you doing? Doing pretty good. Doing pretty good. How are you? Bro, 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 bro. So right now, we are streaming live on YouTube. And we have eight people currently watching right now. This is like a new high. This is a new record, which is crazy because it's, we just kind of record these on Thursdays and who knows when we actually get to them because of busy lives and what time exactly. So like getting eight people, that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. And I mean, there might be some big wig podcaster listening to this and like scoffing, <laughs> eight viewers, oh Lord. But hey man, this is cool for us, all right? Just a little dinky podcast reading tune with all of our bestest friends. All right. So um, I got an email right before recording this, and I think it's kind of funny. It's titled, Thank You Both, Evan and Caleb, Glitches and All. Oh, that's funny because you just glitched. Oh, golly. <laughs> all right. It's from Thomas Wright. Uh, he says, every episode, Caleb asks for a favorite moment. For me, reading Dune for 20-some years, his favorite moment is always when Paul Muhadib is awakened. Awakened. Thomas says that, uh, Evan, your reaction to the Baron every time he comes on, the scene is his yeah. best and most favorite reaction of all time. Aw, that's gross. He's gross. I don't like him. Well, everyone likes when he pops on, so... They can see your gross face. <laughs> Tom says, stay spicy and may the spice flow forever. May the, spi if, the spice flow. If you have a favorite moment from Dune, hit us up, email, Twitter, Twitter at Reading Dune, email us at readingdune at gmail.com. Yeah. And uh, we would love to hear from you because this is, a, this is a tribe of, of people. Indeed. People, people. People, people. All right. All right, so let's talk about this quote, Evan, right off the bat. First of all, Evan, who's in this chapter? Um, who's in this chapter? Um, Paul, Jessica, Stilgar, Gurney. That's that's most everybody, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. No, no, that, that's it. So the quote, how often is it that an angry man rages denial of what his inner self is telling him? Who do you think of those characters that's about? Who is the angry man who rages denial? Gurney? I think so. It yeah. could just be a random quote thrown in there on top, but I really do think this is Gurney. That makes sense. His inner self wants to trust Paul and the Atreides, but he's just so angry that he lets it cloud his judgment. Right. Yeah, it's kind of like, you know, you know in your knower, right, that it's not really... Things are not as they seem, but then you're just like denying it, trying to say like, no, the evidence says this. But like, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to get too meta, too spiritual about the whole thing, but it's. I don't know if you can get too meta and too spiritual. <laughs> <with it. laughs> the whole thing Fair. is just a spiritual experience. Yeah. But you know what I mean, though, right? When you're like in your heart, you know that something is true even though everybody's telling you like oh no stupid bad idea you're like but like that that see that, i know it doesn't make sense but that seems like what i'm supposed to do you know that kind of thing and how often like when we're when we're blinded by anger so angry at something we just miss what we were supposed to do or what that like the inner self we just go off the rails and make things worse which yeah is what Gurney does in this chapter, and we will get to that. Yes. So, last time on Reading Dune, and if those of you who are binging this, I'm sorry, we just went over this, if you're listening. Uh, <laughs> but I need to do this, because I do this weekly. All right. So, last time on Reading Dune, Paul reunites with Gurney. Gurney meets yeah. Stilgar. Gurney 
brought the Sardaukar into Paul's presence, to which they were captured by the Fadaikin. Paul then learns the emperor is hunting Muhadib, and then the guildsmen are buying up all the spice, like it will run out, and then the beast Raban is not getting any, any new troops, which means it's time to attack, because the Harkonnens have already lost. In that moment, when he locked eyes with the Sardaukar, Paul's prescience added up all the possible futures. Boom, 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 boom. And he decided in that moment to move forward and attack. He called his mother from the southern Sietch and made Stilgar realize that he, Paul Muhadib, is the Lizan Al-Gayib, the voice from the outer world. Wow. That was so good. Thank you. There was a lot better than I do it. (laughs) I also have notes. So (laughs) I'm literally just reading my notes. Yeah, I'm usually like, okay, so like Paul was like, yo, damn girl. And then he went over there and he was like, whoa. That's usually my recap. I mean, yours is equally as good as mine, I must say. Stop it, you. All right. So the chapter starts out. We're still in the cave of birds where we were last time. Mm -hmm. And everyone is gathered now. We have Stilgar, Chani, Olaf Fadaikin, the Reverend Mother Jessica, Paul, Gurney, and a bunch more Fremen who probably all got the call from the Cielago or something and came flocking to the Cave of Birds. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The only important person that's not there right now is Alia, who was left behind in the South. Yeah. Oh, she's in the South. She stayed. She stayed. No need for a two-year-old to come fight the Harkonnens. I mean, depending on the two-year-old, she's a pretty useful two-year-old, I think, but whatever. A fully Fremen Reverend Mother two-year-old. Yes. (laughs) The cavern is now full of Fremen waiting for the news from Paul. Because they all think, what what do the Fremen who are there think is going to happen? Oh, they think it's about to go down. Paul's going to defeat Stilgar and become, you know, do the same old thing they've been doing forever and take over control by killing Stilgar. Yes, that's what all the Fremen are thinking. Now, Lady Jessica, and now Reverend Mother Jessica, could feel the tension in the room. It felt the same as when Paul killed James and gave the water for the dead, right? Yeah. The moment where, like, the prophecy became true, you give water for the dead, this holy moment, it kind of feels like that again. The Lazan al-Gaib is here. Now is the time. It's this this moment of anticipation religious anticipation right so jessica emerges on the ledge where paul's private quarters were she felt rested from her journey on the worm right they had to call her she had to ride the worm to get up here but she didn't have to like mount the hooks they have like a whole contraption that just sits on a worm and rides her over there right they have like a like a little a little seat yeah a little like cabana that she just like it's, it's like when you go to Vegas at the pool and you kind of sit in your cabana, but it's on top of a giant worm. I pictured like the, the things on top of the giant uh, elephants in Lord of the Rings, the olifants, the big. Oh. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's it. That's it. Yeah. All right. So, but Jessica's a little uh, perturbed because she really just wanted to come via ornithopter. It's a lot less dirty that way. And they have a bunch of ton, like captured ornithopters. Right. They have a bunch, but going up in the, they don't have the dominance of the air like they have, like they had on Caladan yet. And right now they would be dependent on off-world fuel and they just got to save it up. So it's understandable, but gosh, wouldn't it be nice if I could just get in an ornithopter, a nice luxury one with padded seats and air conditioning and fly, but no, you can feel her like not disdain for the Fremen, but it's just like. There's comfier things that I deserve at this point. Entitlement. Just because. Her, ben, her Bene Gesserit entitlement is yeah. seeping through. I deserve cushions. <laughs> Not just any cushions. So Paul is standing with a group of, of younger men near the ledge. Jessica's just watching Paul, studying him, wondering why he has not totted out his surprise, Gurney Halleck. She knows Gurney is there, but she's not seen him yet. The memories of Gurney Halleck disturbed her a little bit. Gurney reminded her of Caladan, of those precious moments in the rain with her duke, those beautiful days of love and beauty and nice cushions with Paul's father. 
just picture the montage scene of her like thinking about Kaladin and then suddenly it's like, wouldn't it be nice if we <laughs> Yeah, just the, the montage is all like leafy and green and through fields. And then it's just flashback to like stone and sand and orangey colors everywhere. Ugh. So Stilgar also stood on this ledge, but with his own group of men. So you have the younger men in Paul and probably the older men in Stil- with Stilgar. And Jessica could see the uneasiness in Stilgar's body language. It's just, he's about to do something he's never done before. But Jessica thinks how losing that man would be a tragedy, a right. very great tragedy. Like, we need him. Killing him would be so stupid. So Jessica then walked from Paul's then quarters to out the le- to the ledge, passing Stilgar, a way is m- was made for her. People stood in reverence for the Reverend Mother. She arrived where Paul was. The young men drew back. He was looking at the young men and the way the young men were looking at Paul. Then the Bene Gesserit axiom went through her mind, saying, all men beneath your position covered your station. But then she thinks of another Bene Gesserit axiom that runs through her mind, saying, prophets have a way of dying by violence. Yikes. So she's thinking about all of these things she's been taught at her Bene Gesserit schools while looking at Paul, thinking this cannot be good. Right. But also, I just like want to point out when she says, man, cover your station. Um but she found no covetousness in these faces. Mm. They were held up at a distance by the religious fer- ferment for fer- fer- <clears throat> uh, Paul's leadership. And she recalled, and then she thinks about the other one. So it's like this balance between those two things, right? Yes. Right. That's how usually young men would covet the people, the position of people above them. But in this case, there's this religious overtones that are sitting on top of it, that Paul is this prophet. And history tells us that most prophets who try to read, who try to lead revolutions die violently by the hands of the government or somebody else. So she's worried for her son. Always. Always, constantly. She locks eyes with Paul. She hands him a message in a cylinder and says, it is time. One of Paul's companions speaks out. He says, are you going to call him out, Muhadib? If you don't, they think you're a coward. Paul puts his hand on Jameis's Chris knife with a quick movement. Who dares call me a coward? Yeah, Paul gets so like feisty in this chapter. I love it. Silence hits the whole, all of the young group. And the crowd below also heard him. So they're silence. There's work to do, Paul said, turning away, looking out over the ledge at the Fremen below. So there's like this big crowd of people below him. Someone in the crowd shrieks, do it! (laughs) Silence, whispers, follows like, oh gosh, don't be that guy. Paul let the silence settle before he lifts his chin and spoke in a voice that carried throughout the whole cave. You are tired of waiting. The crowd responds and yells and cheers. Mm. Paul waits. Everyone dies. Everything everything gets quiet again. Indeed, they are tired of waiting, Paul thought. Then he took the message out of the cylinder and and remembered what it said. It was a message from the Harkonnens that they intercepted. Mm. The message says Raban is being abandoned to his own resources on Arrakis, which is something he put together in the last chapter. Right. And now they know they have evidence. Paul raised his voice again. You think it's time I call out Stilgar? Before they could respond, Paul chastised the Fremen, saying, Do you think the Lizan El Gaib is that stupid? Ooh. Stunned silence Ooh. in the crowd. You could hear like the sand like shuffling underneath. <laughs> it's awkward. <laughs> Jessica's looking at Paul and knew that he was taking the religious mantle. And how yeah, he must said it. Yeah, he's he's taking that burden on him. Right. And there was nothing that she could do about it. It is the way! Someone shouted back up from the crowd. Paul just says, ways change. 
An angry voice from the corner of the cavern spoke up. We'll say what's the change? Scatter uh -oh. shouts and echoes throughout the chamber. As you wish, Paul said. Jessica could hear the subtle intonations he used. He was subtly using the voice on the entire crowd. But like sneaky. He's sneaky using the voice on everybody. So it's everybody. not noticeable. Yes. And he's doing it in a way that's like super, like no one knows about Jessica at this point. Right. You will say, he agreed, but first you will hear me say. And so, okay, I, I just got this picture. Remember when we saw Jessica use the voice in on the Harkonnens and how it was very much the opposite of what we thought was going to happen? Right. How instead of just saying to stop, she was like, you boys shouldn't fight over me. Yeah. And then they started fighting. We're going to see Paul do that exact same thing with the front end. Mm -hmm. It's not, he, like he could easily just use the voice and say, I am this, you will listen to me. And they probably would have gotten on board, but instead he's going to get them to make the choice themselves, which is even better. Right. Which like you hear, if, if you have no context or whatever, you would think of the voice as like, Man, I'm I'm coming after the Lord of the Rings references today. But when um, when Gandalf is like, and like the room turns dark, you know, right, right, right. But instead, it's like it's not. I wouldn't call it manipulation, but right. it's definitely it's a uh, talking in a way that your ear hears it and obeys. Right. But the best way to do it is just to. Like, get you to think that you made the decision yourself. Right. You're inceptioning them with your weirding ways. Oh, very so weird. <laughs> so now, Stilgar moves out to the edge of the ledge right near Paul. So then, that is the way to the voice of any Fremen may be heard in council. Paul Muhadib is a Fremen. So, Stilgar just said that. Any Fremen could be heard in council, and Paul Muhadib just rode the worm, so he's a Fremen, so we need to listen to him. At least what he has to say. Right. So Paul asks the, the, a question to the crowd. For the good of the tribe, that's the most important thing, eh? I like how Paul in his check just turns Canadian. Like, for some reason, just adds an A on everything. <laughs> Stilgar responds with a voice of certainty. Thus, our steps are guided. So now Paul and Stilgar have this discourse in front of the whole assembly. Who rules this troop of our tribe? Who rules all the tribes and troops through the fighting instructions we've trained in the weirding ways? Paul says and waits. Silence. Paul says, does Stilgar rule all of this? Do I rule? Even Stilgars and the elders of the council listen to me and do my bidding on occasion. Right? So now he's making the case. Yeah. There's an awkward shuffle in the crowd. Uh, oh, oh, mm, ah. <clears throat> so Paul asks, does my mother rule? Pointing to Jessica, pointing her out in all of her black robes of her reverend motherness. Mm-hmm. Stilgar and all the other troops ask her advice. We all know this. But, the, but does the Reverend Mother walk the sand or raid the Harkonnens? Paul could see some of the Fremen start to wrinkle their foreheads in thought. Hmm, yeah. who, who does do this? Some were very obviously offended by his logic right now and are just right. crossed their arms, buttoned up their still suits even more and just says, I'm not about this. Jessica could help but thinking that Paul was what he was doing was extra dangerous. But she knew the message was in his hands, the message that the Harkonnens were done for. But could Paul get the Fremen to see what he did? Hopefully. Cross our fingers. Here we go. So Paul asked the crowd, no man recognized leadership without the challenge or the combat, eh? That is the way, somebody shouted from below. <laughs> And then Paul asked the question, what's our goal? 
Which is a great question, right? Every everybody should ask themselves right. this question in a tense all situation. The, all's realigning from into their mission and vision statement. <laughs> yes. What are we on really website, guys? <laughs> Can any of you guys? Yes, let's realign our mission and vision statements here. Here we go. Is our goal to unseat Raban, the Harkonnen beast? That, that could be a goal. Yeah. Is our goal to remake our world into a place where we can raise our families in happiness amidst abundance of water? Is that our goal? That sounds pretty good. That sounds like a big overall mission statement with a step right. of first getting rid of the Harkonnens. <laughs> so someone shouts up to Paul, hard tasks need hard ways. Which, I mean, okay, valid. I get yeah. it. Yeah. But then Paul says, do you smash your knives before battle? Like, true. why make life harder than it needs to be? Life is already hard. You're Fremen. You know this. Right. Don't give yourself, like, take your advantage away. Paul then asks the crowd of who could beat Paul Muhadib on the challenge floor. And although Stilgar's a great fighter and the best among the Fremen, he's not fit to lift a finger against Paul Muhadib. True. Paul then makes a statement that he's trained the best fighters and trainers in the universe. So he's been trained by them, by yeah. Duncan and Gurney. And he's been trained since he was a young man, which is how he beat Jameis. Right? And now Jessica is now listening to him. How he's using the voice extremely well. But not only was he using the well, the logic he was using was also helping. Mm-hmm. Because he literally has to convince an entire people and culture to go against their tradition they've held for hundreds of thousands of years or whatever. Right. right. So, Paul says, we come to this, his climactic scene. He opens up a, the, the cylinder message thing, Mababur, and opens it and tells them, tells the crowd, Raban is not receiving any more troops and that his spice quota is far below where it should be. And he must bring more spice out of Arrakis than he ever has before. Stilgar moves right behind Paul. Do you see what this means? Paul cried out. Stilgar saw immediately what it meant. They're cut off, someone bellowed from the crowd. Paul took the message, put it in his sash, and then took out his father's ducal ring and held it for the whole crowd to see. I swore never to wear my father's ring till I was ready to lead my troops over Arrakis and claim it as my rightful thief. With that, Paul took the ring, slid it on his finger. Stillness hit the whole cavern. Who rules here? Paul asked. He raised his fist with a Dougal ring on it. I rule here. I rule on every square inch of Arrakis. This is my ducal fief, whether the emperor says yay or nay. He gave it to my father, and it comes to me through my father. Paul then rocks back and forth on his tiptoes from his heels. Almost, he thought. It's almost there. Paul then starts to explain how Arrakis would work with him as the duke. He would need other people to rule and govern, and that Stilgar would be one of those people not just out of a bribe, but for legitimately the good of the tribe. Right. Which, why would Muhadib cut off his right arm, which would be Stilgar, just to provide this cavern with a spectacle and a circus? Dang. Yeah, that line was was heavy. You guys just want to be entertained, or do you want to actually win this thing? Right. What, what do you, what really, what will get us closer to our goals? Right. Paul, Paul the great CEO in this <laughs> in this chapter is what we're finding. Well, I think this is the chapter he like. Yeah, he just said, "I am the Duke of Arrakis. I am the ruler." He like fully stepped into that, and he's proving his point of why he should be. Right. Paul then suggests, "Does he really need to kill all of the leaders of all of the Fremen tribes, leaving everybody leaderless in order to prove this point?" Stupid. Well, I subtract from our strength when it is our time. I am your ruler, Paul spoke boldly to the crowd. 
And I say to you, it is time we stopped killing off our best men and started killing our real enemies, the Harkonnens. In a single, blurred motion, Stilgar has his Chris knife out, pointing it over the heads of the assembly. Long live Duke Paul Muhadib! A deafening roar filled the, filled the entire cavern. Muhadib! 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 And then someone yells out, Muhadib! Yahala! Chulahala! Jessica looks out over the crowd, seeing this, and translate, because of course she's got like, all of these languages stored up in her Bene Gesserit mind. Classic. Because that's the thing they first learn is languages. And to translate it to long live the fighters. So everyone's yelling, Muhadib, long live the fighters. Dang. Everyone's just jacked at this point. <laughs> Let's go kill some Harkonnens. The crowd settled. Silence fell again. And Paul told Stilgar to kneel and to hand him his Chris knife. Stilgar did so, and Jessica was like, well, this wasn't in the playbook. Paul made Stilgar repeat after him. I, Stilgar, take this knife from the hand of my duke. Where my duke commands, there shall I place this blade. Paul, Jessica remembered how she knew this ritual. And her eyes started to tear up with just the thought. I dedicate this blade to the cause of my duke and the death of his enemies for as long as our blood shall flow. After Stilgar repeated it, Paul told him to kiss the blade. Stilgar did so. And Jessica could hear the murmur echo through the crowd. The prophecy, the prophecy, the prophecy, the prophecy. <laughs> the tooth. <laughs> A, ben a Bene Gesserit shall show the way, and a Reverend Mother shall see it. She shows us through her son. So the question is, where do you think Paul got this idea for Stilgar to take this oath? From Leto, right? Yeah, that's why that Leto would take on a new soldier, or like Duncan. Yeah, Duncan must have done this. This right. is definitely what Gurney did, for sure. Which is, we're going to see this paralleled later on. So Paul says, Stilgar leads this tribe. Let no man mistake that. He commands with my voice. What he tells you, is it, is it as though I told you? Jessica thought this was a fantastic move on Paul's part. Top notch. Good, good job, Sonno. <laughs> Stilgar was immensely respected among the Fremen, and now in this transition of power, somehow he ended up with even more respect. So instead of dying like they all wanted him to do, he now has had more respect and clout in the tribe. Paul lowered his voice to Stilgar to call for the Council of Leaders. Bring his lieutenants into a meeting for the need a plan for victory to share with the council before they arrive. Which, let's stop right there. That's a great business plan. I don't think this, is, this will be the business uh, chapter of Dune, like how to run a business well. But like, if you got a council, make sure you have a plan prepped before you go to them. Right, for sure. Before the board <laughs> and, meeting. Yeah, make sure you have your mission and your vision lined out and then make sure you have a plan of execution <laughs> for the board of advisors. <laughs> So the group turns to leave, and Paul then turns to his mother, beckoning her to come with to council. Paul walks away out to the ledge and reaches out. No, I mean, as Paul walked away, those on the ledge reach out to touch him, like they did with the um, when he killed Jameis and started to cry. Everyone's mm -hmm. kind of like reaching out for this figure. And the voices also calls out, My knife goes where Stilgar commands it. Paul Muhadib, let us fight soon, Paul Muhadib. Let us wet our world with the blood of the Harkonnens. Jessica can feel the emotions in the cavern pulsating. And she remembers that conversation that she had with, well, she's just living with the women, right? So the conversation she had with Hera when they did the, like, 
we must never forgive, never forget. She says yeah. that like we are taking the Fremen at their crest, at their most angriest, at their ready to do the thing. That's when Paul and Jessica arrived at the scene. Jessica then entered the inner chamber to see Paul, who quickly motioned for her to take a seat. They're now in his private quarters. And then he leaves. Jessica sat there in this room alone, thinking how Paul must be bringing Gurney Halleck out now. And she remembers Gurney from Caladan and how she is now a different person because of this planet. Because she's not the same person that that they left on Caladan. She's now a completely different person. For sure. She, she's thinking, is Gurney the same person? How has Dune affected Gurney? She looks around and sees Paul's coffee service, the one he acquired from Jameis on the coffee table next to her. Now, all right, coffee service. We remember, I didn't know what this was. Somebody pointed this out to me um, in the YouTube comments, which I'm going to go quote here pretty soon. But a coffee service is referring to something like a set of coffee cups or a pot for brewing. Oh. So this would be Jameis's like friend, little French press and little mug. Yeah. Right. That he used to make it or whatever. And this would have been passed down from generation to generation to generation to people that have killed and taken it. Right. So they would live as nomads for so much of the time. So they needed something they could take and easy to pack that wouldn't take up much space. And so it's this little arrow press and little mug. Yes. Okay. I literally, when we first read it, when, when, um, Paul killed Jameis and took all his stuff. Um, I literally thought it was like, oh, Jameis is a the owner of a coffee shop, like coffee service. Like he, you know? Yes. Uh, I was wrong. That's very wrong. I was also wrong. I thought it was like a little tab. You go to the like, coffee bar and you give it to them so they can give you coffee. But that's also not it. So it's like a little French press that you can, a little Fremen spice coffee French press. Yeah. Keep like those little percolator, those little yeah, it's a little doodads. Um, which makes sense because this next line is that Jessica thought how many people, how many Fremen, how many different stories had that coffee service passed through, right? How many generations does that thing go back before it lands in Paul Muhadib's hand, right? And how Johnny had served Paul with that same coffee service within this last month, like this is a. I mean, you like coffee, Evan, so you understand this. High coffee is like a ritual <laughs> almost of communication as well as like uh, camaraderie and bonding. And it's probably the same thing that they're using with spice coffee. Right. And I just, I just like to think that Frank Herbert also, like many of us, loved coffee. So he just had to put it in the book. Yeah. And I mean, in our real world, different cultures have different like value on that that cough that that ritual of coffee right for us right. it's like you know you go to starbucks you get your thing you walk out or like you sit down with a friend it's casual but like in ethiopia they pick the berries off of the tree in their backyard shell them roast them it's this whole thing from like start to finish and it's like people honor you by inviting you to their house to like do this whole thing and give you coffee you know so like a picture for the fremen it being a little more intense like that you know uh anna from the are you watching on live on youtube right now says that if you look it up if you google it it looks like a turkish coffee set Ooh. which yeah that's even more fancy than the turkish coffee which i could see them doing it like that all right so uh, jessica was thinking about chani and how yes she's a great girl and all, but she'd never be a great companion for Paul politically, right? He needs a woman from the noble house, one that's probably been a Jesuit trained so they can yeah. get his genes and put it in the book and like all that stuff. Yeah, Jessica's still thinking empire thoughts right? at, at this point. Yes, we've the love has gone out the window. How can we move up politically? Right. Feeling that the end was now near, 
Jessica felt herself fantasizing about leaving Arrakis, about boarding a vessel full of comforts, now that, you know, she was a mother of a royal consort. Mm-hmm. She glanced at the crude hangings covering the rough rock and thought about the rough worm ride to get here, all the sand in your face, and how this there was constant heat on this planet. And then she thinks, as long as Chani lives, Paul will not see his real duty. She has given him a son, yes, and maybe that's enough. And this time, Jessica's purely thinking about herself. And if we need Paul to marry somebody so we so she can, you know, move out of town and get off this planet. <laughs> Jessica then had the sudden urge to see her little grandson, while also simultaneously thinking how the Cave of Birds is a great place to start a war from. It was so close to everything they needed. A cough sounds on the other side of the hangings. <clears throat> Jessica straightens. Take a deep, Benny Jesuit breath. Enter, she said. The hangings were flung aside and in walks none other than the fiercely handsome Gurney Halleck. Jessica only had a moment to glimpse at who he was before Gurney was behind her, lifting up her with his arm under her chin. Gurney, you fool, what are you doing? Jessica demanded. But then she felt the cold tip of a knife against her back. And in that moment, Jessica knew that Gurney was going for the kill. So Evan, why is Gurney trying to kill Jessica? Because he thinks Jessica betrayed them. He doesn't know about Yui and all the sneaky, stinky Harkonnen evidence was trying to point at Jessica as the traitor. And that's all he really knows. Yeah. So Gurney says, ah, you thought you had, es- you had escaped, witch. The curtains part and in walks Paul. He's probably looking down thinking, oh, great. My two friends are together. Like my mom and my, one of my best friends is here. It's going to be great. Right. He's, probably, he's probably looking down at the battle plan or something. And then Paul looks up to see the situation in front of him and sees his old friend with a knife at his mom. Yikes. Ugh. Gurney said, told Paul not to move. And Paul is stunned. And I just want to like make a quick like asterisk note. What happened to your prescience, bro? Like <laughs> you can see the future or possible futures. You didn't see this one coming. Right. Well, I think later he says he didn't like that was never something that he saw. Yeah. Right. Right. So he's like freaking out because, yo, I'm trying to learn how to use this thing and it's not helping at all. <laughs> and he probably really needs it right before he goes into a big battle. So For real. Right. Jessica tries to speak, but Gurney only squeezed tighter, knowing that she could use the voice on him. So, doesn't let her talk. Paul tries to ease the tension by using Gurney's pet name, you know, from Caladan. Gurney Man! But Gurney yells to Paul to stop, and if he takes another step closer, he will kill Jessica. So, after Paul tried to use the Caladan approach with Gurney, Paul slips into Muhadib, leader of the Fremen mode. And his hand slowly goes to the hilt of his Chris knife. You best explain yourself, Gurney. I swore an oath to slay the betrayer of your father, Gurney said. Do you think I can forget the man who rescued me from the Harkonnen slave pit, who gave me freedom, life, and honor, and gave me friendship? You think a a thing prized above all else. And Can I just say how good Duke Vito Atreides was? Right. What like, a freaking dude. Ugh. Rescued but, him from the slave pits. Right. <sighs> I also just want to note how like sad and desperate Gurney is in this moment. You know, like I just picture him freaking sob screaming through this whole ordeal, you know, like, do you think I would forget what he did for me? Yes. Like, he's completely out of control at this point. Gurney continued, I have his betrayer under my knife. No one can stop me from... Paul stops him with a sentence. You couldn't be more wrong, Gurney. Wrong, am I? Gurney said. Gurney had used every resource in his power while he was on Dune as a smuggler to find out what happened after the ambush slash attack on Arakeem. The night, everything went to shit for the Atreides. 
He even used some of the Sumata, that wonderful musical drug, right, on the Harkonnen guard captain, probably Nafud, to get the full story. And this is what he learned, that the Harkonnens had perpetuated the story that Jessica is the betrayer, which they needed to continue to um, tell people because that's what Howitt thinks and Howitt is now working for the Harkonnens. Mm-hmm. So that's what, that's what everybody believes. That's what the propaganda says. Paul interjects. The betrayer was Yui. I tell you this once, Gurney. Power move, Paul. Good job. <laughs> the evidence is complete. I do not care how you came about your suspicions. If you harm my mother, Paul lifted his Chris Nice out from its scabbard, held it in front of it towards Gurney, I'll have your blood. <laughs> Gurney only snarled at Paul. Yui was a conditioned medic. He couldn't turn traitor. So Paul then explains how an imperial trained medic about the note and about everything turns traitor. But the note was in Stitch to Bar and it's kind of far away and I don't have it on me because why would you carry something like that on you? (laughs) Gurney thinks all of this is a ruse, explaining how he saw the note from the Harkonnens calling Jessica the spy. You know, he said, he said, same, same. Paul says he saw the same note, but he saw it from his father. And how it was a nasty, dirty Harkonnen trick to make him suspect of the woman he loved. Gurney still not having it. You've not be quiet, Paul said, his voice commanding more control than Jessica had ever heard in any other voice. Yeah. So crazy. It's like the voice on crack. He be quiet. Okay, this is where my notes stopping and pulling up the book, actually. Oh, man. Gurney's arm trembled around her neck. The point of the knife on her back moved back and forth with uncertainty. What you have not, what you have not done, Paul said, is heard my mother sobbing in the night over her lost duke. You have not seen her eyes stab flame when she speaks of killing Harkonnens. Which Jessica's like, wow, he does... Listen to me. He does care. <laughs> Aww. What you have not done, Paul went on, is remember the lessons you learned in the Harkonnen slave pits. You speak of my father in, of, you speak of pride of my father's friendship. But don't, don't you know the difference between Harkonnen and Atreides? That you couldn't smell a Harkonnen trick? Don't you know that Harkonnen, or don't you know that Atreides' loyalty is bought with love while, while the Harkonnen coin is hate? Oh, so good. And Gurney just mutters, but, 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 but Yui. <laughs> the evidence we have is Yui's own message to us admitting his treachery. Paul says, I swear this to you by the love I hold for you. A love I will still hold even after I leave you dead on the floor. Dang. That was, that's a, that's a statement right there. That's that Atreides, man, that Atreides sincerity. Like, I will still love you, but I will kill your ass (laughs) if you touch my mom. That's just how it goes. For real. My father had an instinct for his friends, Paul said. He gave his love sparingly, but with never an error. His weakness lay in misunderstanding hatred. He thought anyone who hated Harkonnens could not betray him. He glanced at his mother. She knows this. I've given her my father's message that he never distrusted her. So Paul says that his dad's only mistake, only flaw is relying on hate. Where he should have just relied on love. Yeah. And the love and the trust. But he thought, yeah, if you hate the Arconans, you're good enough to be in my, my, my stuff. But what he didn't understand is Yui's own love for his own been a Jesuit wife, Juana, and how that overrid his his love, Yui's love for the Duke. And his hatred of the Harkonnens. Yeah, it overrided everything. Yeah. Jessica could feel herself losing control. Seeing the stiff formality in Paul, she realized how much these words were costing him. And that, in this moment, she becomes a mother again. Right. Which ugh, we have all been waiting for. Let's be honest, her being Bene Gesserit Reverend Motherness is nice and it's cool, but there's a dis- this detachment 
Right. Uh, Ever since the water of life, she's had this like weird extra motivation, maybe Ethereum vibe to her. Yeah. And now she's finally just coming to her senses of like, oh, this is my kid. And like, we can do this a different way. Like, whatever. I like it. So Paul then says, one of the most terrible moments in a boy's life is when he discovers his father and mother are human beings who share a love that he can never quite taste. Which is, oh, that's so good. Even yeah, I think I'll go ahead and underline that one. Oh, that's, like that's I, think, I think of my own mom and dad who are still together and still in love, right? They're about to be 40 years married. I, I don't know what their love was like when they first met. In their right. you know young twenties, I only see them as mom and dad, and that is a and to see them as extremely human and flawed people, and still holding. I don't know, it's just so good, so good. Yeah, and like the love that they have for each other is something that you never get to be a part of. Mm-mm. That's just for them, right? You never quite understand it. It's a loss and awakening an awakening to the fact that the world is there and here and we are not alone. The moment carries its own truth. You can't evade it. I heard my father when he spoke to my mother. She is not the betrayer, Gurney. Mm. Jessica found her voice and finally said, Gurney, release me. There were no special commands in this, in these words, in this right. voice. No voice. There, no voice here. Gurney, his hands fell away. Immediately, Jessica crosses over to Paul, stood in front of him, but not touching him. Paul, she said, there are other awakenings in this universe. What do you think she's talking about? Hold up, Paul. Oh, wait. Evan, what do you think she's talking about right there? There are other I awakenings. Know. I don't know. Dude, I got nothing. I have no oh, idea. Do you have, I, don't, I didn't even think that deeply into that. <sighs> okay. There are other awakenings in the universe. I suddenly see how I've used you and twisted you and manipulated you and set you on a course of my choosing. A course I had to choose. That's any excuse because of my own training, right? From She set Paul on this course. She trained him in all the Bene Gesserit ways. She's finally owning up to her responsibility and creating him as he is. And, oh, my gosh. She's, Jessica swallows. She looks in her son's eyes. Redemption moment coming right here. Paul, I want you to do something for me. Choose the course of happiness. Your desert woman, marry her if that's your wish. Defy everyone and everything to do this. But choose your own course. I just, oh my gosh, talk about, oh, it's so good. I can't even talk about it. Dude, to quote, to quote someone in the live chat right now, I'm not, I'm not crying. You're crying. Yes. Oh my <laughs> God. This is one of those, um, um, like moments that these, the, the whole rest of the book is set up this moment. Dang. Right. The, no, Paul, choose happiness. Right. Your, your dad wanted to choose happiness and didn't. I forced him not to. Fuck the world. Do what you want. <laughs> oh, I love it. Which I'm, I, he really plans on doing this. He's going to do whatever he wants. Jessica broke off, stopped by a sound of muttering behind her. Gurney? She saw Paul's eyes directed over her to Gurney, who's now standing there in the same spot. But instead, he's pulled his robe away and his still suit away and exposed his, his, oh no, yeah. Yeah. Moved the robe away to expose the grayness of the still suit. The type the smugglers wear, so they're not the good ones. Like these are the cheap knockoff ones. And he says, put your knife right here in my breast. I say, kill me. I have done... And be done with it. You besmirched my name. I betrayed my own duke, the finest. And then Paul was like, be still. Shut up. Were you not at the ledge? Did you not hear me talk about not wanting to kill my people? (laughs) 
Close that robe and stop acting like a fool. I've had enough foolishness for one day. <laughs> you imagine the 18 year old saying that to like a bunch of 50 year olds, like, please be grown ups here. I need somebody to be a grown up in this room. Oh man, I would have loved to talk to some 50 year olds like that when I was 18. Oh my gosh. I just have nothing to back it up. <laughs> <laughs> it's not like you're like the, the leader of a people and right. can see the future times. Sometimes. Sometimes. <laughs> oh, kill me, say, Gurney raged on. You know me better than that, Paul said. How many kinds of idiots do you think I am? Must I, must I, must I go through this with every man I need? <laughs> like, what are you doing? So then, if, if Gurney then looks to Jessica, because if Paul won't kill me, I've also wronged Jessica, then you kill me, Jessica. Jessica crossed over to him, put her hands on his shoulders. Gurney, why do you insist the Atreides must kill those they love? Gently, she pulled the spread robe out of his fingers and closed the fabric over his chest. You thought you were doing this thing for Leto, Jessica said, and for this, I honor you. Oh, talk about grace and forgiveness. That's what love does right there. Just, yep. I, I only think the best of you. I know that you did this because you deeply love my dead husband and Paul's father. And we honor you in that. Like you thought you were doing right. You weren't, you were being really stupid. But <laughs> that's what happens when rage fills your mind and complete anger. You miss right. what your inner self is telling you, which is what the quote was at the beginning. So my lady... Gurney says, dropping his chin to his chest, looking at the floor. He squeezes his eye, his eye was closed because, you know, he's about to cry and you can't cry when you're on Dune because the moisture will get away. Right. There's no crying on Dune. <laughs> That's a t-shirt. <laughs> yeah, that should be a t-shirt. That's good. So she says, let us think of this as a misunderstanding among old friends. It's over, and we can be thankful we'll never again have this sort of misunderstanding between us. Gurney opens his eyes, bright with just the moisture and redness that's happening. There's probably like a little bit of purple in there because he's got a little bit of blue. Right. He <laughs> looks at her. And so Jessica then says, she just affirms him right here. The Gurney Halleck I knew was a man adept at both blade and balisette. He was the man of the balisette I admired most. Doesn't that, Gurney Howler, remember how we used to enjoy listening by the hour while he played for me? Do you still have the Balisette, Gurney? I, I have a new one, Gurney said. Bought it from Chuck. A sweet instrument. Plays like, um, it's incredible. Da -da -da, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so he, he's just talking on about his Balisette and how cool it is. And then she's like, oh, He's like, oh, this is this is so weird. I shouldn't be talking about this. And Paul's like, no, 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 no. This is not. This is this is good. Right. It's a thing that brings happiness between friends. Paul's like, this isn't weird. Everything else that just happened was super weird. This is what the way it's supposed to be. <laughs> this is the most normal thing in my day. Is <laughs> you talking about how much you love your balisette? Right. That's normal. And so he's like. Please play a song for my mother. Battle planning can wait till tomorrow. We're not going to fight in tomorrow. Let's just let's just take a breather. Let's just call a day and just relax from here on. Right. Which is great. No need, the war can literally wait till tomorrow. Let's just enjoy this. So Gurney's like, oh yeah, that sounds great. I'm gonna go get my ballast. Bum 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 bum. So he like runs out. Paul then puts his hand on his mother's arms and he found her trembling. It's over, mother. Without turning her head, she looked up at him from the corner of her eyes. Over? Of course, Gurney's Gurney. Oh, yes. She lowered her gaze. What Gurney comes rustling. What was that about? What was that moment about? Uh, he's saying that like, oh yeah, it's over between like... We have, we're about, like, all of our friends have been reconciled. Right, but Jessica gets real weird. 
She's real weird. Okay. I just wanted to point out, put a flag in that weird moment from Jessica, because she clearly thought he was talking about something else. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She's She knows something else is going to happen that he doesn't quite get. Like, I think Paul, the leaderness went away and boy, Paul showed up again. Yeah. With all of this, like, the Caledonness of what's about to happen, he just returns back to that place of peace. And Paul leads his mother to a cushion, seats, sits her there with her back against the draperies of the wall, and he's suddenly struck by how old she seemed. The beginning of the desert dried lines on her face, the stretching of the corners of her blue veiled eyes. She's tired, he thought. We must find a way to ease her burdens. So, I mean, she just became, she's actually not that old. Right. But I, but she does have a lot of voices in her head. Yeah, and, and I'm sure she has a lot to do in the CH as the Reverend Mother. So, like, people are constantly taking from her, you know? All the time. And now this whole trauma gets brought back up into the person she was before Dune and all of these things and that love that she's probably, she's probably grieved a little bit of the losing of Duke, the Duke Lido. But this brings it all back to the surface again. We have to resurface all these issues. So Gurney strums a chord. Blum. Paul glances at him and says, I have things that need my attention. Wait here for me. Gurney nods, his mind far away, as he dwelled for the moment beneath the open skies of Caladan with clouds on the horizon with the promise of rain. Paul forced himself to turn away. He let himself out. He heard Gurney take up the tune behind him. He paused right outside the hangings of the room and just listened. Today is going to be the day that it comes. <laughs> <laughs> I did not see that coming. That was so good. But Gurney sings the song. Perfect. So Paul is listening to a classic old Caledon song from his youth, right? We all have our, our vintage bops we love. And right coming up is a robed Fadaikin courier. He appears at the passage and comes to Paul. The man throws his hood back, and the fastening of his still suit is hanging loose around his neck, proof that he'd just come from the open desert. Paul motioned for him to stop, and he then steps out in the passage to meet the courier. The man bowed low, hands clasped in front of him, the way you would greet, you would greet a reverend mother or a Sayadina of the right. So he's meeting him in a religious manner, not in a right. nabe patriarchal manner, but almost in like a matriarchal religious manner. Like a right. It's not even like a military thing anymore. It's it's reverence. Yeah, it's awe and wonder and it's uh, power in a religious sense, like as if he's a prophet. Dang. Muhadib, leaders are beginning to arrive for the council. So soon? Paul said, like, we just sent a message. Like, Stilgard just did that. They should not be here that fast. Right. What are you doing? And then he was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Those are the ones that Stilgar sent earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When he thought that I, he was going to call for the council, okay, I got it, got it, got it. So Paul glances forward. He glances back towards the sound of the balisette, thinking of the old song his mother favored and how the, the odd stretching of happy tune and sad words. Stilgar will come here soon with the others. Show him where my mother waits. I will wait here, Muhadib, the courier said. And Paul's like, yeah, 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 do, do that. <laughs> cool. So Paul leaves. And he goes to the depths of the cavern, right? So he walks out on the hallway, and I imagine this, like, deep cavern down, right? And you have all these rings going around where people have these little apartments. And he looks out on this cavern. And he starts heading to a place where each, in the place that every cavern has, a place near the water holding basin. There, 
there would be a small shy halud in this place. A creature no more than nine meters long, kept, stunted, and trapped by surrounding water ditches. What's he going to use this for? What is, what is that worm used for, Evan? Um, the water of life ceremony, which six meters is like 30 feet, basically. Yeah, this one is nine meters long. How long is nine meters? Oh, yeah, nine meters is 30 feet. That's what I, did I say six? Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's, a, right. that's a baby worm. That's a baby. 30 Just feet. 30 feet, that's fine. Yeah, like 10 That's years. not terrifying. Not at all. Just all of Christmas, it's like... Just at you all the time. <laughs> so what's, uh, what's Paul thinking about this worm? Why is he headed to that place? Um, well, he's about to explain it. Are you going to read it or do you want me no, to? No, I, I want you to do it. Okay. So basically, the water of life is made by <clears throat> drowning a worm in water because it's like water is like poison and uh, like awfulness to worms, right? Right. And so when you drown a worm in water, it turns the water into the whole water of life situation. Uh-huh. And Paul has, since he's, you know, he's now got the blue eyes, he's totally Fremen, got all that going on, Fremen diet, everything. He's built up a tolerance to spice, so his prescient vision is not picking stuff up as well. Yeah, he's anymore. not getting as high as he was when he first got here and seeing all of the possible futures. Right, so he needs to move from like normal, his his regular high school weed to some crazy dab oil to be able to get to the <laughs> level of, you know. So why, why is he making this decision? Why did he decide he needed to up the, up up his uh, dose to Reverend Mother status? Because he's about oh. to drink the water of life. He wants yeah. to drown the worm and do what the Reverend Mothers do. Okay, which no man has ever successfully done. Right, he said, um, "I'll drown the maker. We will see now whether I'm the Quizet's Hatterack." who can survive the test that the Reverend Mothers have survived. He's trying to get on that level now, right? Uh, yes. So the thing Gurney scared him, right? He'd not seen in his prescience that Gurney would try to kill his mom. And he was like, no way. Like, I should have seen, seen that. Yeah. And... I'm really, and there's, he can feel this time nexus around him, but he doesn't know what to do with it. Yeah. It's like there was a time nexus with Jameis, right? In that, and he saw himself dead on the floor, all these different ways. And there was only one way to get out of it. And so he had to like find that way. Um, he feels that again, but it's muted. So it's even scarier. He does, he can't see anything. So he thinks the only thing he has to do He's going to drown the maker, and he'll see. Is 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 he really the Quizach Hatterack, like the Bene Gesserit have foretold? The thing they've been planning for for a thousand bloodlines. Is he the one that's going to be able to do it? Can he see both in the future and to the past? Oh because, my gosh! Uh, Jessica's a Reverend Mother, and we've yeah. seen what that looks like. Right? She can only go backwards in time. Right. Well, Paul's prescience allows him to see possible futures. Right. So if he were to survive this, if he were to take the water of life, he then would be able to go backwards and forwards in time. Oh, which is what he was trying to do. Right. He says that in the beginning of book three. Right. uh, Where he says the goal is to be able to make your prescience, make the future look like the past. When you look at the past, it's always this one, this is what he's trying to do in this moment. Because of that moment with, moment with Gurney and Jessica freaked him out. Right. He's got to have control of the situation now, and he's got to do the only thing he knows how to do. He's already, I've, he's ridden the worm already, right? He's reunited with Gurney. He's, uh, he's now in control of all the Fremen. He's about to go attack the Harkonnens. Next step. Take the water of life. 
Man, okay, so is he is he just like planning on casually walking in there, drowning the worm, making the water, drinking it, and then just seeing what happens? Or is he gonna like tell somebody, you know? I mean, oh gosh. Um, or am I not allowed to know that yet until next week? Yeah, I don't that's no, it's you you can know this because the new next chapter starts with a different perspective. Okay. That's the end. That's the end of the chapter, folks. So now we're just speculating. Uh, this is Caleb fan fiction at this point. We'd like <laughs> to think that it would be awesome if he walked, like you've made the blade down there, worked at the worm eye to eye and drowned it himself. But he, he, like you said, it's so big that he probably has his, his Fadaikin lieutenants, the one who he, believe he's the Lizan al-Gaib, that to fulfill the prophecy, he must do this, right? So, He'll probably all drown it together, and then they will prepare a place for him to to take it while they all watch him. Right, because in, in like a yeah. ritual ceremony of religious order. Yeah, he can't. He can't physically do it by himself. Uh, no, no, I don't think he could. Okay. Well, yeah, if it takes like four men to drown a worm in general, you got to take this thing. This thing is huge. You said thirty feet, one man, and it's got writhing and riddling and doesn't want to be put into this and you got to like hold it under and drown it. Yeah. I mean, he could be beast mode it, just Batman it, just I am the I am the one and just do it, but I really think like he did be, his lieutenants did it with him. His right. he called Corba or one of his dudes and like I know Stilgar's up for something, but I know you're down for a bad time. Let's go drown the <laughs> worm and just take the water of life. You down? Yeah. yeah. No, well, no I like Jessica would probably a, probably be a good person to have around for that sort of endeavor. You would but think. because she had the Reverend Mother before her with her. To tell her know. how to do it, yeah. But even then, like, okay, if we look back at the moment, Jessica had it all figured out before the Reverend Mother showed up. Yeah, that's true. Man. So, yeah, that, man, so much happens in this chapter. It is so exciting. I don't know what else to say at all. Except yes. stay spicy, my friends. Yeah. And if you get in a situation where you've just become the leader of a nomad race and you're about to kill a bunch of people and your prescience is freaking out, by all means, go drown the freaking worm. See what happens. Drown the worm sounds a little bit like a euphemism, but we're just going to leave that right there. <laughs> yes. Uh, all right, my friends. On that note, I will see you next time. And please stay spicy. Oh, and email me. Thanks. Okay. Peace. Bye.